Hello and welcome back to another episode of Animated Conversations. I'm Andy Williams, a producer and director, and today I'm joined by Dave Ingham, award-winning writer, showrunner and show creator. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hi Andy, thanks for inviting me along. Um, This is great, I don't normally talk about myself, so I'm going to be doing that for the next hour, I think. Fantastic. Um, I'm a... As you know, I'm um, a writer for children's animation. Um, In the UK, I'm known mainly for animated preschool shows. Um, I do uh, work pretty much all over the world, um, which is fun. And I um, I sort of uh, work on head writing, show running. Um, I show show creation, development with anyone who will have me. And there we go. Amazing. Could you just highlight some of the key and most memorable shows that you've worked on? Gosh, well, the, probably the first, most memorable, I'd say, would be Kipper. That's the show that I first wrote on. Uh, it's quite a long story leading up to Kipper um, with my life, really. But um, I would say that's probably... I worked out that it's 26 years ago, that show. Wow. First. I know, and I'm trying to cast my mind back that far. But so yeah, you started Kipper, when you were 10? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was a child prodigy. Um, and that was Mickey Penn's Kipper. Uh, he was the um, writer, illustrator of those amazing books. Um, we did that through Grand Slam and Hit Entertainment. And at the time, I was, I was a um, production manager at the time. On, right. Um, show. It was my first production management job at Grand Slam. Um, because I did start out, really, on the other side of the fence, being a writer. And um, Mick wrote the first 13 episodes of that show, um, and he did a brilliant job. They were wonderful. But we had 78 episodes to write, and there's no way he was going to write them all. Um, So he had to try and get some writers in. And um, he had veto on the writers, and he wasn't quite happy with some of the writers. We got a great team later on, but he wasn't happy with um, the writers he was seeing at the time. He didn't think they'd fitted, uh, which was his right. Um, and I was looking at the schedule going down like the Titanic. So out of actual panic, I decided, well, um, I'm going to have to maybe write an episode. Right. Um, and I didn't know how to write in that way. I only knew how to write songs because previous to all of this, I, I all of my animation career, I was a musician. So I thought, well, it's kind of like writing a song but longer maybe prog rock i don't know um <laughs> so I, uh, I um yeah i i one night i wrote a whole script um i knew the characters and i knew because working with mick i knew the length um and so i treated it like writing a song really they had to you know crescendo balance resolve all of that in there um and so just to kind of pick up on that, did did you feel like, along with your songwriting experience, had you did you almost approach it as kind of from a production point of view and kind of reverse engineer what you felt was needed in some ways? Yes, because of the absolutely. Background? absolutely. And I still do now. I'm surrounded by musical instruments in my studio, which you can't see on camera. Um, but I, I always use them as my comforter. I feel very safe when I'm with them in my writing process. Um, it's really interesting, even if I'm just holding a guitar, I just feel real safe and, and a familiarity 
when Amazing. I'm battling the words, I really do. And so, yeah, that script was uh, Margot Marchant, who's the head of the studio, who's, who's brilliant. And she, she gave the script that I didn't put my name on to Ginger Gibbons, who is the producer of the studio, who's, who is the owner of Grand Slam, and Mick. And uh, I think she badgered them over a course of about a week to read it. They didn't know it was from me at that time. And um, they liked the script, um, which was incredible. Then um, they found out it was me, and they asked the question, well, can you do both roles? And I said, well, I'll give it a go. You know, we'll see how it goes. And then the problem was I had to write a second script. Right. And uh, that, well, I treated that like my difficult second album. <laughs> uh, so the first one took a night to write, and the second one took about two weeks to actually come up. <laughs> Using the normal processes of writing, not just writing it off the bat. Um, but I ended up writing 25 episodes on that series. Wow. Um, Amazing. I know. Other great writers, um, George Tarry, uh, James Mason, um, two of them on there. I can't remember who else was on there, actually. So long ago. Neil Arksey, I think. But great crew, really great crew. And I had to juggle, you know, being a writer on that show with um, being a production manager as well. Um, so I had to kick myself up the bum all the time. <laughs> yeah, God, that Dave, he's kind of a bit slow getting the first draft of the script in. <laughs> yeah, look at him. What's he doing? <laughs> what hats he got on this week? Yeah. You couldn't lie to the production manager then for the reasons that you were, that no. the work might not have been done. No, exactly. But what it taught me was looking at the schedule, I knew how much wiggle room there was on that schedule. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, just, and just kind of diving into the process of writing for animation, what do you think the unique challenges are for um, writing for an animation series as opposed to live action? I mean, do you think there are or do you think it's, uh, do you think it's the same thing really ultimately? I, I, I think, um, sorry, my dog's barking in the background. That's fine. Um, well, she knows more than I do about this. Been <laughs> at my desk for twenty-five years. Um, yeah, but I, I, there is there is certainly a marked difference. But um, I think approaching story and series, you approach character in the same way, much in the same way, um, and that's the most important thing coming from character. Other than that, the processes and the techniques all have their own their own little foibles and all have things you've got to learn on every show. I mean, you know, I started off when it was traditional animation and the paint and trace, and it's a slower process. Um, and you could do things like crowd scenes a little more easily. It was still a pain in the bottom for the animators, but the, 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 um, as long as you did it judiciously, you could have crowd scenes that wouldn't cost a huge amount of money. Then when CG came in, of course, a crowd scene was, wow, that's going to cost a huge amount. To, to get these characters onto a screen. So they were budget killers. So you'd get series really at the early start of, um, uh, early start of CG, they were kind of, they, they looked amazing, pristine, but um, kind of deserted of character. And I think it took a while to come down for that to actually, uh, to actually sort of become, catch up in its own way we always thought that traditional animation was going to have to try and catch up in some way with CG. But from a writing point of view, the reverse was happening. There were, there were more restrictions to a certain extent. That's interesting, because one of the things that came up, um, we had a 
podcast episode with Tim Searle um, and he was talking about working on uh, Toad and Friends and his whole vision for that was to almost go back to the very kind of wide shots that you'd get in Lauren Hardy or uh, Charlie Chaplin and but but the problem was that that was more expensive to do so he he would often be having to kind of persuade and cajole the production manager because to keep it on the wide meant you had more characters and you had more animation ultimately and and it was more expensive and yeah, I think you're right that kind of particularly for that early stage of preschool um, animation where, you know, stuff like Bob the Builder had suddenly gone to um, 3D is sometimes those sets could feel a bit spare, really, because they they couldn't have as many characters. Yeah, I mean, and that's the difference. I mean, we had model animation as well when the early Bob the Builder worked on that. And that had its own restrictions as well. Um, but it... There was something about it that was so tactile. I still hark back to those days of that model animation. I work in model animation a lot, and it is, a, I mean, it is a very expensive medium, but there's a reason for yep. that. It's so tactile. Uh, but um, there were shows out there that showed the paved the way forward, I think, to what could be done. And, and it's by writing cutely, really, and, and character developing in a really clever way. I, I remember Roly Polioli, which I, I, I loved as a series. Um, and they added personality to inanimate objects, and that was really clever. Um, so you'd have a teapot that had a smile on it, and you'd have a, a whole building that had a personality to a certain extent that would smile. And I thought that was a really clever way early on of populating, populating a show with personality and character. Um, so that was a big influence for me, Roly Polioli. That's a great example of... Uh, of- what animation can do that, you know, live action um, would struggle to do. Do you think? Do you think there's such a thing as a sort of an animation imperative behind um, the way you can tell a story? So uh, something that you can really that the writing can really take advantage of all of the potential for animation that you just can't do in live action. Do you think of that when you're approaching the writing for animation? Certainly do. I mean, in, in something like the the Rubbish World of Dave Spud, for a really good example of that, is that um, you can have this world that can change in a very fluid way um, very quickly in 2D animation. And it, it it's marvellous how it does that, because our minds trick ourselves anyway to fill in the gaps. So I think that works really, really super well. And the speed that you can work in in preschool anyway and develop something in that way that gives you, I, I don't know, that, that fluidity where you don't need heavy logic applied to make something work uh, from a writing perspective really, is, for me, really stands out in animation. Amazing. You talked a bit about how music is a key to the writing of an episode. Could you talk a bit more about your process and how you approach writing for a new episode? Yeah, I mean, um, when I first start on a project, whether it's it's a development, I tend to um, try and write a little bit of music for it, not not in a a Dennis Waterman way, I want to write the theme tune, but um, just in a way that it immerses me. So I use music as a way, even if it's not a musical show, I'm I'm helping develop something at the moment. Um, And I, I, I just wrote a song off the bat, really just to get me into 
the tone and the feel of the show. I mean, these will never be aired, but they're just for, for tools for me, really. And it really is a, a wonderful um, tactile, I use that word all the time, way for me to get into a show. And if I'm stuck on something, I will just move away. My studio is set into three areas, really. Very small studio. I'm making it sound really grand now, but I've got my writing area where I'm sat now. Behind me is an audio um, area where I use um, Logic Pro um, just to sort of to keyboards and stuff, just to fiddle around and loosen my mind up. And then I've got a wet area where I do sketching uh, and drawing just again to loosen me up and I, and I think they're all kind of connected in that way that bring me actually to the the writing part of my studio to actually start writing so the, it, it comes from many areas for me um, I've, I don't try and unpick it I've, I've realized sort of the older I get the more superstitious I get in some ways that I, I just don't try and unpick what I do it seems to work for me um, and I just think that if I try to unpick it, I might not be able to put it back together again. You know, so that's where I'm at with that. But yeah, I do use various medium to get me to where I want to be on the page. Amazing. And then just to explore that a bit, do when you're writing music, and you said that it wouldn't necessarily be in the show, um, do you find that the music changed the not just the lyrics, but the style of music changes depending on the show that you're working on. Yeah, definitely. Certainly with target age groups. Yeah, I would certainly say that. I mean, you can be more strident and less um, comforting, really, with an older age group. Um, more dynamic, I think. Uh, the, the old fuzz box will come out. Um, but you know, as a general rule, I just try and get the thing tonally right. So something I've worked on, um, with, it's out in November, hopefully, um, Greyhound of a Girl, which is right. a feature film uh, based on a Roddy Doyle YA novel um, that was oh, directed by Enzo Dalo. And, um, and I, they've never heard any music for that that I did, but um, it, it's, it's Irish, so I had sort of, get a, a bit of um an Irish look to what I was doing um and yeah I I just used instruments really to to help me feel my way into the show um and sometimes you know it, I use instruments that really you would never hear in that episode it's just something that surprises me that helps me think in a different way I think or approach a, a show in a different way that hopefully is refreshing do you think that's quite unusual for to use music in that way to kind of find a way into script writing? Because I haven't come across it before in other script writers. I, I think we all have our all writers have their own little tricks and um, ways of sort of easing themselves in. I think um, some people just use plain humour, which I think is you know for me the idea of fun and creativity. I've, completely intertwined and I think that's another one of the reasons why music um, plays such a big part and music is such a big part of my history I think uh, personal history that why shouldn't it be there I it seems to me a, a very logical thing to be part of the process um, so I, I I think you're probably right I, I'm, I'm sure there are other um, writers that w came from a musical background that used music in that way, but I don't know how many. I've never really had the conversation. 
That's interesting. Alongside the music, you talked about having an art and sketching area in your studio. Do you think the art making and the sketching helps you write a script that is easier for a storyboard artist to pick up and interpret? That as you're writing, you're already thinking about ways that someone might translate it into a storyboard? I'd like to think so. I mean, I've been very lucky um, that I I worked in production before I became a writer, uh, per se. And so I understood how storyboard artists worked and their language, because that's the language I had to use, especially early on when I was animation checking. So I'd be checking um, dope sheets and cells, putting them all together. Um, for, ready for the Rostam camera to be shot. So I kind of understood that language, which really helped me. And I think it's something um, that writers, you know, if they get the chance to, should try, really try and understand because it is a collaborative process, even though some productions, they like to separate think, people out, um, between, especially between writers and animators, I've, I've found. But shows that I've worked on where those boundaries have been blurred to a certain extent, a little like the sound collector that I've just done with Eagle versus Bat, which is a model animation shot on live action, but it's got some CG in it. And you had to know the mechanics, really, of how it's all being put together. Um, so I was sort of asked to look at storyboards, um, to look at boardings, to look at animatics at certain points, just to make sure we got the tone of it right. And it really did help because we were in the lucky situation of being able to actually narrate. Um, the narrator could narrate to picture, which is very rare that, that happens. So we had pretty much full picture. The, um, Kira could, could Kira Knightley was the narrator. She could um, she could narrate too, which gave us such Amazing. a tone and helped keep everything so much in the moment. That and I don't think if you separated things out, we would have got that. Um, it it is really a special show for that reason. Well, for many reasons, but specifically that one from a writing point of view. And. In that example, did you know, how early on did you know that Kira Knightley would be doing the narration? Um, not very early on at all. We'd been talking about the show and, and doing, I was helping with some of the development with, uh, with Erica and Tom really early on. So oh, she came on, I think, there were a few names banded around, I think, but um, she, she agreed to do it. I, pretty, I would have thought six months before I would have thought I can't look I mean they may know they would certainly know better than I but um she she came on quite late I think but because of the nature of the process we could write to picture and we could refine the um the scripts to her delivery to a certain extent Great. um it made it all the better it's it felt so comfortable that's great. And that was that was kind of where I was going with the question was um, how much you could then adapt the script to suit the to, to suit the actor, really. Yeah, it's absolute luxury. I mean, some shows that you work on, you know, the script is locked down completely um, right from the start because often they have to send an animatic off to, you know, 
overseas to do the animation. So you, you don't have that to and fro that you can have with a show that has been um, created and created, developed and produced in the same country. So, it, you know, it's totally understandable that you've got to lock things down. Um, where that lock-off comes, really, for me, you know, the later you can lock things off, the better, because it gives you a chance to return to it and retrofit a little bit more. Yep. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. The Moving on to characters and kind of world building, um, do you have... Do you have, in your mind, is there kind of, does plot or character lead the storytelling or are they both equally as important? Is there one that you kind of feel kind of goes first, really, out of those two? Uh, I always try and go for character first, really. Um, that's where you're going to get your fun for me. If, you can always feel if something's a little too plotty. Um, sometimes that happens, but, you know, to get something that's character motivated, the motivations, digging deep into those characters, you know, even for a five minute episode, is an absolute joy. And it's, it's where everything I believe should come from. And that's why, you know, say this is writing for animation, it, it, it applies to all writing as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you know, it is, it is a technical thing that we do. Um, I'm a firm believer of that. And, um, you know, the more true and beautiful you can make that wall, the better, really. And for me, the character really is the start of all of that. And the character, I think what makes a difference really with that approach to storytelling is that it allows it allows for surprises along the way, really. If, um, when it's too plot driven, often it feels quite predictable. And it's that kind of character element that can really turn the story in a way that you know takes you by surprise and makes it interesting yeah i think you're right and i think it makes it a little more truthful um which is a bit of an odd thing to say isn't it but it feels like you know there's more of the writer's truth in there coming from character i mean you know we're we're far more connected to character as humans than we are to plot um we can certainly connect to situations that we all sort of can share. But for me, you know, most of our conversation really is about other humans. Um, so th- for me, that it's, it's perfectly logic that we come, logical that we come from a character's perspective when we come approach writing. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking before about storyboard artists and about that collaborative element to the storytelling. Do you, are you quite kind of detailed in terms of your um the way you describe action within your scripts or do you take the view that some of it you allow to be interpreted by the storyboard artist how does how do you kind of normally play that i i I can really only write what i see in my head really so i tend to be quite descriptive um and at least then the storyboard artist knows what i'm seeing yeah and if they want to change it from that point of view from that that then that's absolutely fine. Um, but I, I think clarity really in writing, especially in action and, and setup, is, is imperative. Um, because then, then directors, boarders know what you're, you're actually trying to deliver to them as a, as a narrative. And, um, and then, then they can make their decision based on that. Yeah. I, that that makes a lot of sense. I had 
uh, one writer friend that was talking more about live action, but one of the things he wouldn't put in his scripts is he'd never put in like the camera size or the or the shot, just because his experience was that as soon as he put that in, the director ignored it um, or did completely the opposite. So how he'd get over that, he'd he'd describe it in such a way that it would it would conjure up a close up in your mind's eye, even if that wasn't what you were kind of specifying really. So he tried to kind of um, dance around that balance between being kind of descriptive, but but also allowing for that kind of area of interpretation from the director. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I've, you know, I, I to start off with as a writer, I would certainly put camera camera moves in there, you know, enter screen, left, enter screen, right, that kind of thing. But I soon realised it didn't make for a very entertaining read either. And um, you're really, you're trying to entertain as, as well when you're writing a script. You're trying to make, yeah. add fun or drama, you know, pathos. You're trying to add that in there and too many camera camera moves and too much technical side of it really draws away from that real good stuff. And I think there is a balance to be had there. I mean, you know, I'd I love to stick a contra zoom in a series if I can. You know, that's, that's one of my... <laughs> It's Classic. one of my ticks. The jaw yeah. shot. Exactly that. And if I can get one in, I'm a happy man. But um, I try not to overburden directors and boarders with camera moves. Amazing. I mean, I think that example is a great example of that it's almost a joke in itself, isn't it? The contra zoom. That, yeah. That I think it does kind of, if, that is, if that's what you're going for, I think um, it kind of needs to be that for the joke to function, really. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't mind that kind of pastiche in, in visual storytelling. I'm not too keen on um, using lines from other films, shows in a story t- too much, unless it's, you know, ne- hardly been used before. But, you know, we're going to need a bigger boat. I I've seen that in so many scripts. But, you it's know, totally. it's, I think, and, I think and, it, and that kind of goes back to your point about character, really, that, that often when it's used, it it sort of disrupts all of the rules of the character that have been set up um, at the expense of the joke. Yeah, exactly. I think it was, who my dad telling me? It was John Mortimer, I think he was. He said, the success of writing a great novel that everybody will love is looking at all the bits that you love in it and take them out. Um, <laughs> you do hold on to these things that sometimes get in the way of, of your narrative. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, moving on to kind of whether you, I wanted to move on to whether you had any tips for people that were just starting out as writers, um, any kind of sort of advice, really? Yeah, my main one is, and this has all come from, you know, all those years of experience um, of things that, you know, have taught me little lessons, mini lessons, really. One is don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, you've got to keep keep yourself light on your toes especially if you're a bit of a lone wolf writer like I am myself um, um, be on time be prompt um, yes always keep writing if you can I mean you can burn out a little bit but it's it is a muscle that needs exercise and so stretch yourself you know do a different genre have fun with that if you've got a bit of time to do that um, and my most important tip I really think um, that I, I learned was somebody asked me to send something even though I hadn't finished it 
and I did that and it was a massive mistake because that script even though I wasn't happy with it was um, was sent around all the powers that be within that company and I was criticized for for that work and I realized I should have just said no I should have said I can get it to you tomorrow when it's finished and I could have worked all night on it and I've certainly got a script that was finished not something that was still formulating um, so that is a real for me a, a, a real um, was a real wake up that you know you've got to trust your own instincts and you've got sometimes you've got to you know just just say can you give me just that little bit more time because it'll be twice twice a script yeah and often the the deadlines you know some deadlines are immovable and you've got to kind of move heaven and earth to get to them but often a lot of the deadlines mm. can be quite arbitrary and there is there is room for manoeuvring there um, and I think you're absolutely right that it kind of it's always better for it to be good and, you know, um, maybe kind of with a bit more time than than to to be something you're not happy with that is delivered and is still going to need changes because it be, becomes a real false economy to try and meet that deadline. But then there's more work yeah, kind of absolutely. afterwards. Absolutely. And, you know, it's that thing. Things are easier to pull apart than they are to build. You know, and so if nothing, if something, a script hasn't had the time to be built in the right way, to be structured and to feel right, and you know it feels right for you, um, when it leaves that computer, the chances are that script will never, ever see the light of day. That's great. And that's great advice. Um, then talking about future projects, uh, could you kind of talk a bit about stuff that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I can. Um, one, I can't mention what it is yet. It's still contractual at the moment. I've had to sign a very large NDA. But um, but that that is a preschool. It's a series. I'll be heading that up. And um, that should be starting uh, in October for delivery around 20, end of 2024, I think. But that'll be CGI. Um, I'm also... I've got a um, film that I'm... A long-form piece that um, we're doing the early developments on that with with a composer, um, that's called A Butterfly in Paris. Um, and that's something that I've uh, written myself. Um, and it, I've had it for a while now and it, I'm really excited about it. Are you able to talk a bit about what the story is for Butterfly in Paris? Yeah, sure, sure. It's about um, Butterfly that, um, that hatches in the middle of winter on a very temperate day in the middle of winter in Paris. And it looks out and there it sees all around is snow. And it's about its battle, really. A beautiful thing battling through the elements in a beautiful country um, to save its own life. And I, for me, something about, it was about fragility. There's something about the very soft sort of learn there in a way about the way the world the climate is changing. Um, and it just felt... It's it's an it, as an environment as location for me it just felt wonderful and we went out there um, and looked at some of the locations and it certainly is the right city to do it in um, so so that's really exciting um, just trying to grab some funding on that um, and I've got another feature that I'm working on and um, which is that treatment stage at the moment um, there's a zombie feature I've been 
messing around with with a friend, which is hilarious. Um, and the I'm doing a uh, six to nine age um, series. We're developing that at the moment, um, based around grief, which is right. interesting. Fantastic. Um, and then one of one of the kind of final questions that I had for you was whether there was a piece of direction or feedback that you'd you've been given for um, for any of the scripts or the work that you've done that you kind of feel is a really great piece of um, direction or feedback. Yeah, this is from Tony Collingwood, and he said to me when I was working on the Secret Show, it's really really easy to age something down it's it's quite simple to do that but it's really hard to age something up once you've started and he's right absolutely he's right about a lot of things but that was a great piece of advice you've got to get your target age group straight away and be very clear about that because if you start to sort of try and age things down or up it kind of loses the essence of what it was when you first started writing it so maybe what you were writing isn't right so that that's interesting and and so did he mean that that it was better in a way to to be older in terms of the tone than to be too young because because you could yeah. always kind of you can you can you can skew it down yeah but aging something up is really hard it's like carrying a boulder uphill you know yeah that's great um because we've had a bit of breakup on the recording and it's kind of it's uh, it's slightly sort of law that um, we're quite close to each other in terms of where we live, um, yet our kind of the connection has been pretty patchy. Um, I was gonna. I wonder whether oh, we could kind that. of circle back and I could ask you a couple of other questions. Of course, of course, of course. So, one question that um, that I wanted to to kind of explore was. Um, was one to kind of talk about um, the the kind of the first animation series that you watched as a child that you can remember watching that had a real impact on you, and then to ask you about maybe an animated movie or series that you've recently watched that you thought was great. Okay, the, my back to my young days. I loved the Magic Roundabout. And I was lucky enough to actually write on a, a, a reboot of it um, through Silver Fox right. moons ago. But um, I used to love it. There was a freedom about it, especially the early episodes. And it was slightly mad, but also really fun. And those characters were really fun. And again, it all came from character motivation, even the most surreal episodes. And I loved that. And it always stuck with me. Um, also, and another show that I was lucky enough to write a reboot on was Pingu, which I right. loved. Always loved it. Still do. It's, um, it's a joy and very funny. Um, as for uh, recent animations, um, I'm trying to think of one that I really, really has got to me. I mean, I loved Up when that was there. It, yeah. it, I thought that's a wonderful animation. Um, I preferred the first half of it to the second half, to be honest, but um, I thought that was great. Um, I've not seen Elemental yet, but that's on my list to see. Um, I can't think of anything else, really. That, I, that There are stuff, I've, like Belleville Rendezvous, that is 
um, showing again soon, isn't it? That's it's stunning. Thirty years since it's going it's, it's 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 amazing, and um, yeah, and anything you know. I mean, How's Moving Castle, Spirited Away, all of that, and my neighbour Totoro. I just, I mean, I know they're not modern pieces, and I think his final film's coming out, but um, I love them, and I can just revisit them all the time. And if I'm feeling ill, I'll sit on the sofa and watch it. You know, that's me. That's great. My last question was to ask if you could explain, for the benefit of some of our listeners, the difference between a writer and a showrunner. And just talk a little bit about how you approach each of those roles. Uh, yeah, I mean, a writer for hire, when I do that, and I'm doing a bit of that at the moment, which I'm loving. Um, it, that's, that's an interesting role. I mean, it is almost a tip there, really, is, you know, you, you, you do put some of your own truth and your own life in there, but you're part of a process when you're a writer for hire. And you've got to kind of understand that, that, you know, you can't be an auteur in that way because it's going to get messed with, it's going to get pulled apart for many, many, many reasons. So, you know, don't get too upset if it that happens or if the notes seem to come a little left field because that's part of the job, really. So that's what I, I felt, um, you know, is the difference. And when you're actually working as a showrunner, you're overseeing the whole series in a balanced way, um, which is very different. So... And because of the emotional contact that you have with your writers um, and with the director and the producers, um, you do become a lot more immersed, I think, emotionally um, in a show in that way. And do you find your when your when your role is as the showrunner, how how do you kind of because uh, you end up being sort of a bridge really between the producers and the writing team to some yeah. to some respects. Um, how do you how do you kind of manage that? Do you have um, do you feel kind of your job is to be um, sort of a defender for the writers and to combat it from that point of view, or um, what's the kind of mindset really in terms of how you approach that? Yeah, I do defend the writers. I think it's it's only right to do that, and um, I'm a writer myself, and you know. I, I I try to instill in the people on the other side of the fence what the writer's job is and um, and what they're trying to trying to do or trying to explain. So there are conversations. Occasionally, I have to jump in, um, but generally, that's for no reason from the writer being a bad writer. It's the reason of speed, economy, and clarity. Um, uh, but. So, yeah, I, I do defend, but I've been quite a unique position, I think I've been, having worked, you know, in animation on the other side of the fence, you know, in production, probably for five or six years, probably longer than that, actually, on and off. When I was a jobbing musician, I'd come in and do work um, in Paint and Trace in Soho, just for some money in the back pocket. So I'd known about animation a long time from that that side of the fence, so... I kind of see both sides and I try and balance both sides so um, and connect both sides. Yeah, I was just I was just reflecting that your your kind of career has given you a real 360 degree view of animation production, which which is a fantastic skill set to have as a showrunner. Yeah, I'm really lucky. I mean, 
for the main reason I'm lucky um, is that it's an amazing industry. It really is full of fantastic people and and great friends that I've had, I've I've made along the way. And you know, we've had a bit of tragedy in our lives when I lost my wife in two thousand and nine, um, and um, to a to a long illness. So I had to bring two boys up, and um, the industry was fantastic. I mean, Rebecca Watson, my agent, who I've been with for as long as I've been a writer, she was instrumental in keeping me visible. Yeah. The industry itself always were in touch with me to see how I was. It's a big, big family, and one of the reasons why I, I love it, you know, I, I certainly want to always be a part of it in some shape or form, where it'll be mentoring or just having a chat like this, you know, it's great. And it has been a major part of my life for, I'd say about 30, 31, 32 years that, um, you know, it, 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 it feels like a family. We recently, um, Richard Knight and Kimmy Kraft, two friends I work with at TV cartoons, sadly they passed away and we went to two funerals right. and it was great to see the old family there and, and how people had, you know, Developed their lives, or some had retired, but everybody was still there. Everybody had, had this shared love. I think it yeah. was just wonderful to see, and um, and and that support network is so incredible. Oh, absolutely incredible! And you know, and and I see that with other people that have been suffering as well. You know, in in certain ways, it is a very kind industry, and um, yeah. And when people aren't kind in the industry, which happens from time to time, that's what characters can do. Um, they get found out very quickly because it's also a very small industry. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right that kind of that um, that support is really invaluable. And that when people um, people aren't so nice and kind, that that yeah that gets discovered as well. Exactly. I mean, people, you know, say, why, why are we so great at children's TV and, you know, especially animation? Well, the reason is because the people that are doing it are great. And it all, everything always transfers to what you see on a screen. So there is that love there, I think. I'm welling up. <laughs> Completely. Um, well, thanks so much for being such a fantastic guest uh, on the episode, Dave. That's a pleasure, Andy. Pleasure. And uh, thank you at home for listening as well. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, don't forget to tune in to our next episode. And until next time, stay animated. Mm-hmm.